Well, howdy. I sure do appreciate y'all hitching your wagon to episode 25 of Celluloid Junkies. I'm Luke Kane, and I brought with me in this here studio my good friend Damien Heath. Damien, I got some serious talk to make with you. <laughs> Hello, Luke. That was pretty good, wasn't it? Oh, it was okay. <laughs> no, it was better than okay. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Right, well, anyway, this month we're heading down on to... Actually, I'm going to keep doing it. This month we're heading on down to Marfa, Texas for George Stevens' 1956 classic giant. Best you be sitting comfortably now, because our aim is to make this episode as long as the movie itself. This is Texas, mighty colossus of the Southwest, a land of infinite variety and violent contrasts, a land where today's ranch hand can become tomorrow's multimillionaire. I guess you're about the best-looking gal we've seen around here in a long time. I think. Pretty I think I've seen down here. Why, thank you, Jeff. That's a very nice compliment. And I'm going to tell my husband I've met with your approval. Oh, well, no. I wouldn't do that. I mean, well, no, I... I'm a rich boy. Me, I'm gonna have more money than you ever thought of having. Why, that's wonderful, Jim. You sure do look pretty, Miss Leslie. You always did look pretty. It's pretty nice, good enough to eat. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is no cook. Vic, you should have shot that fellow a long time ago. Now he's too rich to kill. Giant was a big deal long before the cameras started rolling. It was an event picture for Warner Brothers, one that rivaled Gone with the Wind in terms of scope and ambition. The journey from development to release would take three years. It would shoot for 114 days, 37 over its original schedule. By the time it was finished, its 2.5 million budget would have blown out to 5.5 million. After a year in editing, director George Stevens presented the long-suffering Jack Warner with his movie, an epic running three hours and 20 minutes long. By the time of its premiere at the Roxby Theatre in New York on October 10th, 1956, it seemed as if the whole world had been holding its breath for Giant. Not long after that, one of its stars would be married, another divorced, and the third dead and buried for over a year. But to understand how it all happened, we must go back to September 1952 with the publication of Edna Ferber's novel Giant. Inspired by the exploits of real-life oil tycoon Glenn McCarthy, the novel traces 25 years in the lives of three individuals at the dawn of the Texas oil boom, which soon replaced cattle produce as the state's most lucrative export. The novel immediately tops the bestseller list, but not everyone is crazy about it. 
many Texans are insulted by Ferber's critical assessment of their hometown. The Pulitzer Prize-winning author paints Texas as a breeding ground for racist, misogynistic and classist attitudes. Despite having spent two years researching her novel, many Texans openly question what right Ferber, a woman Jew from New York, has to comment on their way of life. The irony of this argument is seemingly lost on them. Ferber's previous novels have been adapted more than 20 times, so it's no surprise when George Stevens, director of the popular western Shane, teams up with the author to bring Giant to the big screen. Neither one is paid a salary. Instead, they opt for a cut of the film's proceeds. With Giant, Stevens will paint a moving portrait of the glory days of Texas cattle masters, without shying away from Ferber's message about racial inequality. He spends a year developing the script with longtime collaborator Ivan Moffat and Fred Gwiel. Rising star Rock Hudson beats out many other, more established actors for the part of Big Benedict. After failing to loan out Grace Kelly from MGM or entice Audrey Hepburn for the part of Leslie, Stevens offers it to Elizabeth Taylor. The much-lauded director had played an integral part in helping Taylor transition from child star to serious actress five years earlier with his hit film A Place in the Sun. But the role that every male star in Hollywood has his eye on is that of Jet Rink, the insecure ranch hand who strikes oil and turns millionaire. After lengthy consideration, Stevens cast newcomer James Dean, a New York actor whose lead performance in East of Eden had earned him strong notices. He is paid significantly less than his co-stars. Principal photography begins on the 19th of May 1955. Stevens shoots the film in sequence as much as possible. The production begins on Soundstage 15 of the Warner's Lot in Los Angeles, then moves to Charlottesville, Virginia, then on to Ryan Ranch, posing as Riata in Marfa, Texas, before returning to LA for the final scenes. Production designer Boris Levin designs the Benedict Ranch house, which is transported in pieces via train to Marfa, Texas and fitted together. Many civilians visit the open set during the film's five and a half weeks in Texas, hoping to catch a glimpse of Hudson, Taylor and Dean in action. Ever the businessman, Stevens even encourages amateur camera clubs to stop in and take photographs. But not everything runs smoothly. James Dean is a method actor who doesn't take direction very well. He refuses to hit his marks, is prone to mood swings and arrives late for work, sometimes not showing up at all. He clashes with co-star Rock Hudson who believes Dean's constant scene stealing is calculated. Elizabeth Taylor isn't happy about it either, but she is soon won over by Dean's wounded artist charm. An off-screen rivalry for Taylor's affections begins, mirroring the on-screen rivalry between Bick and Jet. On her co-stars, Taylor would later say, I was in the middle, and it would just be like a matter of shifting my weight. On the afternoon of September 30th, 1955, while cast and crew are looking over the day's rushes, George Stephen walks into the room looking white as a ghost. He announces that James Dean, who'd only just wrapped on the film, has been killed in a car crash. The news disturbs everyone, but none more so than Elizabeth Taylor. The following day, she cannot get through a scene without crying, and production is delayed a week. An actor and friend of Dean's, Nick Adams, is brought in to do Dean's looping. The five-month shoot mercifully ends on October 12, 1955. Stephen spends a full year meticulously piecing together his footage. A series of preview screenings indicate that Warners have a smash hit on their hands. The movie opens to great fanfare, becomes the third highest grossing film of 1956 and is lavished with Oscar nominations. Unlike the novel, the film is embraced by Texans. Today, it is largely remembered as the final film of a promising artist whose premature death transformed him into an icon. But Giant is much more than James Dean's stunning contribution. 
it remains a searing artifact of the bygone age of Hollywood excess, one that remains a moving reflection on an historical moment in the history of Texas, the hazards of marriage, and the ongoing fight for social justice. So Damien, tell me what you think of Giant when you first saw Giant. I first saw Giant maybe 10 years ago with you, and I really like Giant. I don't think it's a perfect film. I think it's far from perfect, but it's uh, it's really fun. I think the uh, description of The Gone with the Wind of Texas is pretty accurate for this movie. It's big, it's brash, it covers a, a long time, 25 years in this movie. And the first half is definitely more engaging than the second half. But I think it has a social commentary that Gone with the Wind doesn't necessarily have. That makes it interesting, but I know we're going to talk a lot more about that. It's also one of the easiest and quickest three-hour films that you can watch. I was um, stunned when I watched it last week in preparation for this podcast because it moves at an absolutely blazing pace. And the second half, obviously, where so much more happens, so much more time is covered, it moves a lot quicker. As a uh, comparison, it takes about three minutes for Rock Hudson and Elizabeth Taylor to profess their love for one another and for her to ditch this arranged marriage that she was going into and to move to Texas with him. Which is something that old films did. They yeah. fell in love very quickly. Absolutely. I just want to say the Jewish New York women, they're always causing a ruckus, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. But also, the film does not really show too much of the day-to-day cattle ranching lifestyle. I don't think it dwells very much on the, the business of cattle ranching. No, not at all, really. No. Uh, it would have been interesting to see a little bit more of that now that I think about it. But I do have a question for you, Luke. Does this qualify as a cursed production? Because pretty much everybody major in in this film had problems throughout their life unless they had died beforehand. I mean, James Dean died during production and Hudson later died of AIDS after being closeted his entire life. And, you know, Elizabeth Taylor had personal tragedies out the wazoo yearly until she became addicted to painkillers for an accident that occurred earlier. And, you know, she died a very large shadow of her former self. And even Salminio died in tragic circumstances. So, you know, there's, um, it really is a portrait of some doomed people as yeah. well. No, I, I agree. I mean, I suppose you could say that it is a little cursed. It, I, but I don't, I resist things like that because I don't believe in curses, as you know. But, I mean, certainly the, the people in it who made the film, their lives were very dramatic and extreme and they had a lot of shit going on. Yeah. And Elizabeth Taylor's husband died soon after... One of her husbands, she'd divorced and then remarried, and one of her husbands died very soon after this, I think. Well, she was married to... Mike Todd? She was married to Michael Wilding hmm. throughout the production of Giant. Yeah. And then they would get divorced after that, and then she met Mike Todd, and he was the one that died in the plane crash. Right. And then she moved on to Eddie Fisher and stole him from Debbie Reynolds. <laughs> A salacious affair. <laughs> she seriously, like, lived at least four lives worth in I one life. So. Yeah. <laughs> I'll never forget when she presented uh, Best Picture to Elizabeth. She, she was yeah, presenting she... Best Picture and she read out Elizabeth, that's me! <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Elizabeth Taylor was pretty gorgeous. <laughs> For me, with Giant, I first saw it when I was a kid. Your mum loves Elizabeth Taylor, so yes. she would have introduced you to all of these movies. She did. So I, I saw this one and I saw Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and... 
Cleopatra and a lot of her kind of big epic Hollywood movies. And my parents had this knack of always telling me some little tidbit about film that would get me super excited. One that's vivid in my memory is that they told me that a little preview for War of the Roses came on and my mum said they both die in the end of that movie. <laughs> they push each other down the stairs. That's not a little tidbit about film. That's spoiling the movie. I suppose you could look at it that way. <laughs> uh, the funny part was they didn't push each other down the stairs. The chandelier comes down. Yeah. But things like that. So, And then I would be just anxious to see you know, what happened. And the thing that she told me about Elizabeth Taylor was that she had violet eyes and that she was the only person in the world <laughs> to have violet eyes. And so I would study these movies and I would study Elizabeth Taylor's eyes and there is something really fantastic about Elizabeth Taylor's face and her eyes and the thing that I think about when I think about Giant is its glamour. I mean you've got Stevens casting these three annoyingly stunning people and then he puts them in these alien landscapes which are just in themselves stunning and beautiful. And I think it takes on even more importance, you know, as time goes on, because they are three Hollywood icons. I mean, Rock Hudson, Elizabeth Taylor, James Dean. I think the glamour of the movie, every year that passes, it just gets more of it. That's right. Because they're, you know, from a bygone age, because they're gone, because we see these beautiful people at the peak of their beauty and at the peak of their powers and talent Mm. all together in this really complicated threesome. It's interesting that so many people at this point in cinema history had stopped going to the cinema because TV was uh, in homes now. And so the epic was back when it came to cinema. So, you know, this year especially, and we'll get into that when we talk about the box office and the reception, but a lot of those were shot in cinemascope. So they were really wide and really colourful films. And this film's very colourful. But at the same time, it's not very wide. Instead of going wide, he went tall. He shot 1.66 to 1, I think, mm. for this film. So it really is in keeping with the name and the, the idea of Texas as a giant. Well, Stevens was very deliberate about not shooting in Cinemascope. Mm. Because the film is called Giant, he wanted his actors and his characters to appear tall. Mm. And, you know, he said about Cinemascope that it's great if you want to shoot an ant or something <laughs> sort of rectangular. But it doesn't really suit the dimensions of man. And so, you know, he made a very, very clear choice. The other thing that adds to the glamour of this film is the use of Technicolor. These films are coloured in a way that is different, you Mm. know. There's an artificiality to it, but there's also a real beauty in it. It makes all of the images look sort of like paintings. The combination of the actors, the landscape, the fact that it's shot on location. And the interesting thing about the glamour is that it undercuts the criticism of Texas. And I think that that's why... Texans loved the movie and hated the book because I think they were just so excited to see their hometown painted in such a beautiful, glamorous way. You know, it brought a real sense of excitement and thrill and danger to the lifestyle of Texas and to the habits and attitudes of Texas. I mean, the film's quite inflammatory. It is, but at the same time, it's easier to watch a three-hour movie and see a transition over 25 years than it is to read a book which takes a lot longer and see that transition. So the transition happens much quicker on film. You know, there's that scene at the start where Uncle Borley says, oh, well, if you live here for 25 years, you'll feel about this place the way that I do. And essentially that's what the story of Elizabeth Taylor is. At the end of the movie, she says, this is home. I don't want to go home. This is my home. She was really proud of the state that she now lives in. So at the same time, it is very pro-Texas. It's just very pro-Texas with a social consciousness. Yeah, It's very pro-Texas while also being anti-Texas because the prejudices we see in the film are very much 
about Texan prejudices. But there is commentary on other prejudices as well. I think the film very much plays like a novel on film. Yes, it does. Stevens is such a big fan of the slow dissolve. He uses that technique all the time to indicate that time has passed, whether that time be you know, an hour or ten years. But that's essentially his go-to for Time Has Passed. And he does it in Shane and A Place in the Sun, I noticed, because I, I rewatched both of those for this episode as well. The characters, as you sort of indicated with Taylor, have to make these kind of major transitions. We have to have Leslie go from a total fish out of water to someone who's completely at home in Texas. Jetrink has to go from a very insecure outsider ranch hand to an immensely wealthy man who is now drinking to forget his loneliness. And Big Benedict has to make the biggest transition and the hardest transition to make in film, which is a man who has all of these inherited prejudices, generationally inherited prejudices, to someone who really, out of having his pride wounded, is then able to dispense with them. And it's interesting that despite having lived with Leslie for 25 years, it's not until he has a grandchild that he really does make the decision to part with all of these misconceptions that he has. Misconceptions like wealth is somehow commensurate with superiority. The biggest uh, like nail in that coffin is Jet becoming wealthy because suddenly you've got this immensely wealthy man who he thinks is the most uncouth, uncivilized, brattish person that there could be. And so, you know, that straight away is like, okay, well, suddenly money doesn't equate moral and intellectual worthiness if a brute can have more money than I do. Stevens, he really kind of waxes melodic about the virtues of Texas, and but he doesn't present it as faultless. So I think it's a really balanced depiction of the state. He kind of presents it as a place where those who know know and those who don't are kind of left out in the stifling heat. Talking about the stifling heat, they have these beautiful images of the green, luscious, rolling hills of Maryland at the start of the movie. And then it cuts to, you know, he's getting off a train in the middle of nowhere with his new wife and then driving, what did he say, 50 miles (laughs) to the ranch? And he gets there and it's brown and it's dirty and it's windy and it is particularly jarring. It is like a culture shock. Who on earth would want to leave Maryland to come to Texas? And so that's the impression that you left it with the start of the movie. I mean, you're really in Elizabeth Taylor's mind at this point. I love the midway through the movie, this is after Jet strikes it rich with oil, that Elizabeth Taylor's gone home for a wedding and Rock Hudson goes there to meet her and they reconcile their differences uh, and their marriage is back on track. But then you cut back to Texas and they've planted grass at the front of their ranch. So they've brought this little piece of Maryland back to Texas and they've made it better. That's the impression that you get, a little bit of this and a little bit of that. It's not that one is in totality better than the other. And I think that it's a good balance to make that kind of statement. It also says something about the characters that that happens. Bick letting there be a little bit more of equal footing in their marriage. Yes, and that's about, that's about when it changes, because mm. essentially their marriage is going to be over prior to that scene. And that scene is so stunning. Mm. The way that Elizabeth Taylor and he and Hudson perform that scene, my goodness. At the so wedding. Gorgeous. It's beautiful yeah. that she slowly senses him there, and, and everything plays out on their face. Apparently the crew were all crying when they were shooting that scene. I love that she says to him, I'm still the same person. You know, that's really important that she says and that. And she, what does she say? What's her line? She says, you knew who you were. You knew who I was when you met me. I was unpleasant from the very first that's day. Right. Which is a great line because <laughs> she is. She's giving him shit yeah. the entire time. <laughs> and he kind of needs to. He needs it. He deserves it. Yeah. 
they set the tone for Texas very early, that it's big and it's brash and it's over the top. And Bick is especially aversive when he is asked how big his plot of land is. And they guess, what is it, 20,000 acres? And it ends up being 550,000 acres. And he says, oh, there's a couple that are bigger in Texas. Uh, but it's clear that he's very wealthy. Well, very that well. question is an affront to a Texan. It's almost like asking what colour underwear do you have on? This is what I read. Okay. Uh, so that's why he kind of acts very kind of put out by that question. It's it's considered impolite. Right. Why? Do you know? I'm guessing it comes down to the sort of old school sense of pride that a lot of Texans have, that maybe it's a little kind of gloating a bit to sort of say, well, I have half a million or whatever it is acres. It's like someone boasting about how many eggs they've got in their basket. And it's just something they don't like doing. I mean, I love to boast about my eggs. Um so, as you said before, at the start of the film, the economy of Texas is largely based around this large-scale farming, and the Benedicts are one of the wealthiest estates in the state. And obviously this changes over the course of the film, uh, because when Luz dies, who is Bick's sister, she leaves a small, and I use the word small very loosely here because it seems to be actually very large, parcel of land to Jet Rink who overhears, he then overhears a conversation that some neighbours are having about how much money is coming in from their newly planted oil wells. And they're saying a million dollars a month, I think. So the land isn't worth much, but what's below the land is worth an absolute fortune. And this is the tale of Texas. Uh, Early in the 1900s, the oil boom occurred. And by 1940, Texas was the biggest oil producing state in the US. And that helped put the US ahead of Russia for oil production, total oil production. And this led to rapid industrialization. And from 1900 to 1940, the state's GDP grew 240 times, from 119 million to 29 billion, while the rest of the US grew only 24 times. And Houston, Dallas and Fort Worth, just as an example, they grew by over 500% population-wise from 1900 to 1930. So essentially, Jet Rink is the tale of this nouveau riche striking it super rich with oil. That's where all of his money comes from, from nothing to everything. And Big Benedict, as a direct counter to that, is he's one of the old crew who's determined to carry on in the ways of Texas. All he wants to do is leave his considerable wealth and land to his children and have them carry on exactly the same as the family has always been doing. And it's not until, obviously, later in the film where they're not interested that he begins to cave and consider that oil could be an option. One of the best things about this movie, though, is that family values are giving this kind of virtuous appeal throughout, and it's seen with the descent of Jet, and it's also seen with the conversation between Leslie and Bick in bed, and eventually his acceptance of his grandchild, who is a half-caste child. Yeah, well, Stevens called this an intimate epic, because even though it is really extravagant, has got giant set pieces, ultimately it is about a marriage and a family. And Stevens keeps reminding of this by having so many occasions in the film. Yeah. Birthdays, funerals, homecomings. Weddings. Yeah, weddings. When you distill it down, it is about family trying to keep, especially Bick Benedict, trying to keep his family together and finding these constantly coming up against these kind of outside influences. One thing that I love about the movie is wind as this recurring motif. You know, when um, Leslie arrives, they're in a dust storm. And then later there's a scene where she opens up the window expecting that she's going to have this beautiful, bright sun come into her face. And instead she gets this awful, dusty wind and it disturbs Luz's papers. 
later in the film when they're at the hotel, at Jet's hotel, that someone opens a window and all of the guests have to move into a different room. So I love that as a metaphor for the idea of these outside influences constantly coming in and kind of challenging Big Benedict's idea of what his family is meant to be and how they're meant to go forward. One thing I just wanted to say about Stevens as a director, one thing that I think makes him a great director is how he frames a lot of his scenes. If you notice, he'll stay on someone's face through a scene where they don't almost don't participate in the scene. And an example of this is the very first dinner scene where Bick is there to buy a horse from Leslie's father. That scene starts on Leslie eating silently. There's another one where when Bick carries Leslie into the ranch after they've been married, it stays on Luz. He was notorious for shooting scenes from multiple angles. And there's a, another one later in the film where Angel is just about to go off to war and he's on the seat in the foyer in the background while uh, obviously Bick is having this kind of alcoholic meltdown. Yes. Yeah. Or where Luz is dying. I don't think we even get a shot of Luz in that scene. Mm. It's everybody else reacting. Particularly Jet's reaction is probably the most interesting because we see that he's really formed an attachment with this woman. Mm. But I think that adds a dynamic to the scenes. It adds a fire to the scenes because you're not just watching the action. You're watching somebody somebody's perspective on the action. Yeah, it's very true. That's what makes the the film so engaging. That's what makes those three hours fly, is that there's always something psychologically interesting at play from somebody's perspective. The movie gives us so many complex characters. You know, it's hard for films to do that. They're lucky if they get one or two, maybe three. But this film has at least ten characters in there that are really interesting, and some of them don't appear until halfway through the film. Like, for instance, their son, played by... I don't know who he's played by. Oh, yeah, you do. Everyone knows him. The son who marries the... Um, yeah, I don't know the actor. You're going to look at his name and go, oh, yeah, I have heard of him. Uh, played by Dennis Hopper. <laughs> yeah, he is, he is a super I didn't interesting... I know that. I just, the name blank. I blanked on the name. And he, by the way, loved James Dean and was really devastated when he died. But he's got such an interesting journey in this film. Has to fight first against his dad then next takes on the whole world, practically, in the form of Jet Rink. What is that? Cab's head. So we take and wrap it in clean white cloth and wrap it tight in canvas and put it down in a pit of hot mesquite coals. It stays down there 18 hours or so and boy, them brains are sure sweet. Fascinating. I mean, I don't think I'm really terribly hungry. It must be the heat or something. Call is hot. Wait till July. Eat it while it's hot. What's the matter with That's what I was afraid of. It starts with us thinking that Big Benedict is going to be the fish out of water. Then you think, oh, this is where it's going. It's going to be about a Texas in Maryland. And people that hadn't read the book must have been, or weren't aware of where the story was going, must have been a bit, oh, okay. But then, of course, for the rest of the film, he's very much at home and it's Leslie who is the one that has to, you know, make the adjustment. One thing I thought about the film was that Texans are friendly and extremely social. Think about how many scenes there are where Leslie and Bick have at least 10 people in their house. Almost all the time. The only time they're ever alone is when they're in the bedroom before lights out. Other than that, there's always somebody around, which personally would drive me insane. But I like that it shows that there is that real, even though neighbours are 50 miles apart, 
that there, there is this real sense of connective tissue amongst amongst the locals and that everybody is essentially a neighbour and a friend, which is something we do equate with small provincial towns, particularly in the southwest in America. Another thing that I think is interesting is that conflicts between men are resolved with fists at a certain point. Mm. Conversation goes so far and then it's like, all right, do you want to take this outside? To the point that they kind of make a mockery of that at the end of the film. <laughs> they do. Uh, and what's funny is that obviously Bic can't resolve conflicts with Leslie this way. Mm. And so the scenes with Leslie where she's challenging him, you, you sense, are far more painful for him than whenever he has a conflict with a man because he knows how to handle conflicts with men. He's big and brawny and he can, he can do that. But with Leslie, he has no idea how to talk about his feelings or his opinions. You almost get the sense that Texas men are almost crippled by their heterosexuality. I mean, even during that scene where Leslie goes up and questions why she can't be involved in this conversation with all of the men. You know, she's not going to go and sit there with all of the women. And then later in the bedroom, she's asleep. And instead of being physically violent with her, which he can't be, he decides he's going to take off his shoes and slam them on the ground as loud as possible. That's his way of being physical because he's still doing this gruntish male kind of performance. Yeah, without crossing the line. Yeah. One thing that the film sets up very early is that life in Texas is pretty gruelling. You know, it's physical labour over long hours in oppressive heat, blinding dust storms. Everything is travelling via horseback and it's long journeys. And people have built up a tolerance to these hardships. And they speak plain and they kind of embrace their humble way of life and they're attuned to the rhythms of nature because they rely on nature for their survival, for their income. I think that the way the film does this is by having Leslie faint at least twice <laughs> when she gets to Texas. Mm. And, you know, Luz, I thought that's what I was afraid of. You know, like, Luz so badly wants her to faint. What are they cooking at the start that she faints and she refuses to eat? Aren't they serving pig brains or... Something like that, Like, yeah. just glop it onto her plate. Yeah. <laughs> it's really it awful. It doesn't look very nourishing. I'm with her. The thing about the racism in the film is that it's kind of an accepted social norm. I don't even know that the Texans in the film really recognise it as prejudice. It's just the way things are. It's the way, the way that things always have been. And I'm not excusing it. I'm just saying that it's not kind of a racism born out of experience or even a learned racism. It's just the way things are. There is definitely... Uh, some more overt cases of it throughout the movie. Yeah. There are. One case that I'm talking about is when Bick and Leslie arrive and Bick doesn't even think to introduce Leslie to the Mexican guy that's met them. Yeah, they're just the help. It doesn't literally does not occur to him. Hmm. It's a different kind of racism from what modern racism is and what we understand racism to be. Well, it's more of an oppression. I mean, the scene in the diner is outright racist. Yeah. Refusing service to somebody is a racist act. And, and again, the scene in the beauty parlour. I mean, that is, a, that is a motivated decision that somebody's made to make somebody feel lesser, which is not merely, you know, just how it's always been. You've got to actually make that decision. Yeah, certainly the, the racism we see in the film escalates. And the last hour of the film can actually get quite upsetting like the scene in the beauty parlour where she just sits there waiting and waiting and waiting. Mm. Especially the scene in the diner is hard to watch, especially because Bick loses the fight. But losing the fight is integral to him growing. You know, if he'd won the fight, then he would still have his pride. And the pride has been his big fucking problem through the whole movie. We're just talking business. Just business. 
Oh, well, please don't mind me. Do go on. I'll listen quiet as a little old mouse. You'd be bored, honey. This is dull. Why, I'd be fascinated. Leslie, we're talking about politics. You married me in Washington, remember, darling? I live next door to politics. Brought up with them. Please do go on talking. I'd love it. This is men's stuff. Leslie, how about a cup of coffee or a drink or something? Men's stuff? Lord of mercy. Set up my spinning wheel, girls. I'll join the harem section in a minute. Now, Leslie, don't you go worrying your pretty little head about politics. <laughs> you mean my pretty empty head, don't you, Judge? Could I get the coffee for you, Leslie? You too, Uncle Brutus. You don't feel well, Leslie. I feel just great. My adrenaline glands are pumping beautifully. Boo! If I may say so before retiring, you gentlemen date back 100,000 years. You ought to be wearing leopard skins and carrying clubs. Politics? Business? What is so masculine about a conversation that a woman can't enter into it? Leslie, you're tired. Perhaps I am. Judge, I think if you get down in Brewster County and start really campaigning... Yeah, well, we can depend on Stargate County. Pinky? Yeah. I, I reckon I'll go on upstairs and get my beauty sleep. You go ahead on, honey. Good night, gentlemen. Good night, honey. Good night, Good night, Good night, night. Good 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 night. I think Giant was probably the most important of those roles that she took. She'd had, obviously, some success with A Place in the Sun, particularly, and then there were a few films in between, but Giant was where it really kicked off, and that kind of led to Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and Suddenly Last Summer and Butterfield 8 and ultimately Cleopatra. And all of those movies dealt with some kind of social issue. I mean, Tennessee Williams wrote Cat on a Hot Tin Roof and he wrote Suddenly Last Summer, uh, and Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, the film, took out a lot of the homosexual themes but suddenly last summer did not and then obviously Butterfield 8 is essentially about a high-class prostitute who has endured child sexual abuse and so there's this undercurrent of just really adult themes in her work at this point and Giant is a socially conscious movie she plays that role uh, she she plays it very well in that movie. It's clear how good of a person she is to other people. I think it is a socially conscious and feminist role. Uh, she's a strong-willed woman. She's willing to take on a state as big as Texas, and that is portrayed by her husband. She questions its greatness when it treats the original inhabitants of its land so poorly, and there's that early scene when she questions Bic when they're in Maryland about how Americans stole Texas from Mexico. And that draws this knowing look from the butler, who is black, who obviously knows that African-Americans have been through this in every single state, southern state and Midwest state of the US for decades and decades, and that she is not free from any kind of blame as well. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, the first scene to me, apart from greeting the Mexicans, but the first scene that really makes her kind of heroic is when she requests that the Benedict's doctor travels to the Mexican village to treat the baby. And that is a recurring theme that comes through the movie, this baby who is very sick and probably won't live the day. She asks the white doctor to go and see him, and this is something that just isn't done. 
if that white doctor doesn't go down there at her request against her husband's wishes against the doctor's wishes that baby's dead mm. instead that baby grows up to be unhell who is a war hero who comes back dead fighting and defending those very same people who wouldn't have had him treated and so there is that story that runs through it's just a little background story in this movie that's got so many of them I mean, that is one of the most special kind of social consciousness elements of this movie for me. Yeah, it's a devastating contrast. You know, uh, I think it's Bob's homecoming, their son-in-law's homecoming, and there's huge people and a real extravagant party, and then we just get this emptiness of Angel's body being delivered by a train back to his grieving family and buried in a separate, segregated cemetery even. Yeah, and he's presented, the family is presented with the flag of the United States of America by the army, and then Bick presents the father with the flag of the state of Texas. Which really is the first time that we see Bick changing. Mm. Yeah, I find that little side story one of the most special parts of this movie. And that side story Jack Warner wanted taken out. I'm not surprised. (laughs) (laughs) He said, the movie's too long, don't need this. Stevens had... Yes, uh, he probably said some more choice words than that, I can imagine, being Jack Warner. Stevens had fought or had been sent in World War II to be essentially a photojournalist, a propaganda maker of films for the US government, and he'd visited Dachau, the concentration camp. And so I think that motif of war and the juxtapositions of the homecoming were of particular importance to him. I think he described them as his personal favourite part of the film. I I also think it it, it gives some kind of gravity to the character of Leslie. She's made this choice against everybody else's wishes, against what is done in Texas, and it has led to something that is truly great. Yeah. And so it, it adds some kind of worthwhileness to her actions. Well, the thing is, she doesn't just push back in terms of causing conflict, When she faints at the get-to-know-you party, the very next morning she's first up ringing the bell and she's down at breakfast. And that's when she has that great conversation with Luz, is it, at the bottom of the stairs? And she says she's... uh, I love her choice of words in that scene where she says, I'm not going to be a visitor in my husband's home. Yeah. You know, she's, she's being very kind of dogmatic about what her role in the house is going to be, but also she's being deferential by saying, my husband's house. (laughs) Yeah. So she knows exactly how to play her card. Yeah, she's very intelligent. The biggest problem that she presents to her husband is the fact that she's going to pursue the Mexican cause despite his objections. She doesn't let it go. The scene that you talked about where she gets the doctor (laughs) to visit the Mexican village, I always find quite comical because she's doing it a second after her sister-in-law has passed away. (laughs) Yeah. Also, that's a great opportunity because the doctor's there. It is. But for her to have that objectivity in that moment is really quite stunning and and darkly funny. And there's also more objectivity in that scene because she then goes up to Bick later on when she returns from the village and says, where is Warwinds? Oh, I had to put him down. I had to shoot him in the head. Only I could have done it. That's tragic. But she again, through intelligence, manages that conversation so well. That's right. All of her actions in this kind of early part are about how she sees Texas and she sees what is necessary to kind of get her point across. She does need to make concessions. She's making concessions the entire movie. Oh, yeah. One of my absolute favourite and the funniest scene of her, I guess, the effect of her feminism is the scene where the men are talking politics. Yeah. And there are a couple of things that I think are really, really funny about that scene. The first is when she goes up to him and she says, I love you. 
And then he kind of looks sheepishly around at the guys and says, thank you. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's hilarious. But I also love after she's kind of had her little shit fit, she's kind of standing off to the side and the women are even complicit. That's what's horrible. The women are like, Leslie, come on, let's go upstairs. And it's like, ugh. But she's standing off to the side and they're resuming their conversation and she just says, that's right. (laughs) Send the children to bed so the grown-ups can talk. And they they all just stop again. I think that's really, really funny. And also that then is something that she's right. Absolutely. I mean, she is right in this instance, but she apologises. She apologises for the way that she raised it. She does, but I mean, most people in that circumstance would not apologise. They would think that the way that they raised it was the way that they were forced to raise it because they weren't being heard. Yeah. Okay, and a case could definitely be made for that. But she makes a concession. She she makes a concession. So that there's dialogue. Yeah. Because she knows that if she continues to be kind of affronting if that's a word. Yeah. There won't be dialogue between her husband. It'll cause this, you know, giant argument. Yeah. And they'll be at kind of loggerheads. Yeah. So the only way that she can kind of start to finesse the situation is by beginning with an apology. And I mean, I, I think that scene where she apologises, that's the scene where she says, you knew who I was when you met me, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And then she says, you're stuck with me now, you married me. It amazes me how topical this film is and kind of saddens me that these issues were transparent enough for someone to have materialised them on, on screen over 60 years ago and that we still seem to be coming up against these prejudices and old ideologies and, yeah, it just... It's very saddening. Yeah. The scene that kind of is the turnaround scene in this marriage, interestingly, is when Bick puts his son on the horse. Yeah. Didn't you hate that? Like, didn't you hate him in that scene? I hated uh... him. Look, I think it works two ways. I think he put an already scared child, you know, onto this horse, right? And, you know, he was a little rough with him. But at the same time, for Bick, this is something that has happened all throughout Texas history. This is probably how he was introduced to horse riding. So you think, okay, maybe the kid's going to turn around and fucking love it. And he's going to be a rancher. But he didn't. And I don't hate him in that scene. I just think it's two different worlds. Oh, I just think he's a stubborn... Nasty oaf. No, I just think it's two different worlds. Uh, Interesting. The other thing that I really love about Taylor as a feminist in this is that she issues this really comfortable marriage with a British diplomat because she falls in love with Bic. And she wants that kind of challenge of going to Texas and taming this man and taming the state. It's like she goes to a foreign land and uh, she brings her influence to that estate and the farm to the business and the family and the community. And I think that's a really powerful statement as well, that in the start of the movie, she makes this conscious choice. Yeah. To the point that Elizabeth Taylor's sister says, oh, if you don't want David Caffrey, can I have him? <laughs> that's really funny. Yeah. I also love how when the sister says, are you in love with Big? And she says, <laughs> I think so. Just really like, yeah, yeah. you know, I, this is what I want. Yeah. That shocked me. I couldn't remember that it happened Quite that quickly. I thought there was a little more to and fro at the start of the movie before they got together, but, you know, that wasn't to be. It was like, you know, Blanche coming home and saying, I'm getting married next week. For a film that is full of really just a beautiful, bright, sparkling dialogue, the scenes that really make an impact are the quiet ones. Mm -hmm. And one scene that I remember is when he's about to leave and him and Leslie are kind of walking across this green expanse toward a fence where beyond them there's a train going past and she just kind of looks up at him and in that look it's as if she's saying something is going to change now irrevocably in both of our lives and we're both aware of it and that symbolism of that train leaving you know and the idea that 
he can either get on this train alone or they can get on it together. And that sort of mirrors the scene when their marriage is falling apart and he surprises her at her sister's wedding. And that's another moment where they could go one of two ways and which way are they going to go? And, and whatever choice they make there is going to have these ripple effects over years. Visually, the film is really stunning in its use. I mean, as I said before, that scene of the green rolling hills replaced by the dirt. I mean, it's so it's such an obvious thing to do, but at the same time, it's done so well here. Yeah, well, it would have been easy to make the call of, like, let's just start in Texas. Yeah, yeah. Let's start with them on the train. We don't even need to go through how they met. But you're right, it's so important to show us the greenery and, and also something recognisable mm. so that then in our minds that contrast is just... And, you know, the idea of her arriving and this house sticking up like a thorn out of this giant flat plain. I know how... I mean, just personally, I found it very unappealing. But it almost looks like the intrusion of man into a natural... And and there's something about that that is quite jarring. Mm. There is so much emotionality in that image of that, just that house sticking up out of that, you know, from this desert. And it takes so long for them to bring that little bit of greenery back. But it is a concession that he makes when he realises that he wants this marriage and she is an equal partner in this marriage. I mean, when production design is playing such an integral role in the emotional meaning of the film... I mean, that's good filmmaking. Don Graham is a professor of English at the University of Texas at Austin, an award-winning author and writer-at-large with Texas Monthly Magazine. His most recent book, Giant, Elizabeth Taylor, Rock Hudson, James Dean, Edna Ferber and the Making of a Legendary American Film, is a beautifully assembled account of the making of the film and its enduring legacy and is available at Macmillan Publishers, Amazon or from wherever it is you get your books. Well, the first thing I should say is I absolutely loved the book. I chewed through it. I'd love to hear that. Why did you choose to write about Giant? There's obviously been quite a few films about Texas, but why why Giant? Well, Giant's been on my mind for a long time. I started to write about it back in the 1980s, but I was working on another book, and uh, it just kind of slipped out of my consciousness. And then uh, I started teaching it in a class that I teach called Life and Literature of the Southwest. This was around 2004, 2005, and uh, I decided to have the students see it. And I was struck by how timely it was for these millennials. They don't like long movies. They don't like anything in the past, but they wound up really liking Giant. And so there continued to be all through the period from the 80s forward into the 1990s and then into this century, there continued to be kind of interesting reevaluations of the film by critics. And there's a woman, uh, an influential feminist who wrote about it in 2016 and was praising the film, how surprising it was for its uh, feminist themes and its uh, consideration of racial issues. So the film seemed to continue to be connecting with audiences that you wouldn't ordinarily think it might. So that was part of it. And the other part was when I started working on the book, I just got absolutely fascinated with James Dean, Rock Cudson, Elizabeth Taylor, all these great characters slash people that appeared in the film. And I, I got caught up in their stories. One thing that I loved about the book was how you described, I mean, just structurally, how you would sort of get us to a certain point in the making of the film and then we would stop. You would give us this sort of summary of James Dean's life leading right up to the moment where he walks on the set of Giant. And so, it, especially right. with James Dean, it almost felt like he was setting up this bomb that was <laughs> going to explode. <laughs> right. And Dean 
Steve kind of threatened to take over the book, to tell you the truth. My own feeling, and, and I know there are a lot of good books out there about films, and particularly films based on other on famous books or whatever, but a lot of times, I think the authors get bogged down in minutiae about script changes and little bitty details, and there's no overarching or through narrative that connects the actors with the film. Now, I have to admit, in the case of Giant, the actors are fascinating, and I don't think they always are. In uh, I mean, the real actors in other films. So it was just a combination of a film that was really important in Texas, uh, and I'm a Texan, and it has continued to find audiences right into, well, 60-some-odd years later. So my problem right now is finding another film to write about that's half as interesting as Giant was. <laughs> It really is. And, and Giant is special in that it seems to be one of the few films from the 50s that so many people from, I guess, my generation and millennials and even younger uh, have seen and are still interested in. That's right. Yeah. I think here, in the case of the millennials here, they don't see it unless somebody sort of assigns it to them. Because my students, a lot of my students, you know, they're 18, 19, 20 years old. And they haven't seen it. They haven't heard of it. Mm. And they may, in fact, be from Texas. But, yeah, there are several generations. I run into people all the time, people in their 60s, 70s, and they say, a lot of women in particular, they say that's their all-time favorite film. It happens all the time. You can go back and look at a lot of films from the 50s, and they don't resonate. They don't connect. And I think the thing that really makes Giant always relevant is the racial issues, particularly now with the whole border problems, et cetera, here in America, and Elizabeth Taylor's surprising feminism in the film. There's that great scene, you remember, when she dresses down the men? Yes, I love that scene. Yeah, and the young women in my classes, they, they can't believe it that, that here's somebody from that era who's saying, you know, what they want to say. So I think the secret thing about that film and it's not talked about much, is how wonderfully it portrays a family over a period of years, over 25 years. And uh, I'm always amused by the fact that the kids that Vic and Leslie Benedict have never do anything that their parents want them to do. They always go off on their own, and the parents just kind of <laughs> have to accept it and, and move on. Yeah, and adapt. You're right, because so many uh, films kind of end with that and then they lived happily ever after, but this film starts with that. That's right. George Stevens, in fact, the director, said that he had that in mind, that most films about marriage end with the marriage, and he began with it, although he didn't show the marriage. But they get married real quick, and then she's brought down to Texas where it's culture shock. The film goes on through 25 years, and we see them raise a family and grow old, and there's just not many films that do that. I think the film is replete with just really great scenes and amazing moments, but one of my favorites is when they're having trouble in their marriage, and she goes back home and uh, is, is at her sister's wedding, and he surprises her. And Elizabeth That's Taylor right. and Rock Hudson's performances in that moment, which is a silent moment, it's as romantic as you could ask any film to be, those few moments. That's right. And that's, they kind of witnessed the wedding that we didn't see. Yes, <laughs> at yeah. At the beginning of the film. Yeah, it's kind of brilliant uh, in terms of uh, screenwriting. The film's constantly subverting expectations because initially it's uh, Bick who's a fish out of water. And right. for people who are unfamiliar with the novel, they probably weren't expecting that it would actually be Leslie who's kind of taken to this alien land and she's the one that <laughs> right. spends the rest of the film kind of being the fish out of water and slowly kind of earning her 
her keep in Texas. By the way, I wanted to mention one little Australian detail that is not in the book, but I ran across it when I was doing research. Edna Ferber, who wrote the book, it came out in 52, 1952. She was a, she was popular in Australia, and there were four chapters. The first four chapters of her novel were excerpted and printed with illustrations in one of the Australian women's magazines. Really? Yep. So that, I know there was an audience over there. I don't know anything about how many Aussies saw the film. It's certainly like a, a film that's available here and popular here. It's funny, I was just talking to a friend and I mentioned that we were doing Giant, and she's about my age, and she said, oh, I love that film. And <laughs> there, so, you, yeah, there you are. Its reach constantly surprises me. Can I ask you about George Stevens? Because you highlight a, a distinction um, in your book between directors who are artists and craftsmen, and I'm wondering on what side George Stevens falls in your opinion. I think he's both of those things. George Stevens, in my opinion, has been underrated by the auteur critics. They don't find him like John Ford or Howard Hawks you know, or Alfred Hitchcock. They don't rate him that high. I think what happened with George Stevens is that he was a very competent director, and then his experiences in the war made him into a great director in World War II. He shot footage of the Dachau and the concentration camps, and it affected him so much that he wasn't able to work for about three or four years after he came back from World War II. And then he made A Place in the Sun, which I think is a terrific movie. Then he made Shane, which is a major, important Western. And then he made Giant. And then he made The Diary of Anne mm-hmm. Frank. So, so he really made, in a way, four major... I think that last was not as good as the others. But anyway, he made at least three, maybe four sort of major films. There's no question in my mind that without his determination and commitment, Giant would never have gotten made. He had to fight the studio. He had to fight a bunch of people to get that film made. It's really one of those great director periods, isn't it? The 50s for George Stevens. It is. And I'll tell you something. I was so reluctant to try to reach George Stevens and talk to him. I mean, George Stevens Jr., sorry. His son, his son is a very distinguished figure. I don't know if you know that or not. Here in the U.S., he's in his mid-80s now. Anyway, I thought I don't really want to try to get in touch with him and interview him because I thought he might, one, not like the way I was going with this book or that he would want to kind of control it or something. So I never talked to him. So about a month after the book came out, I got out of the blue a four-page letter. This is a real letter with a stamp on an envelope, et cetera. <laughs> And it was from George Stevens. And he said he absolutely loved the book. Well, you couldn't you couldn't ask for higher praise than that, I don't think. No, I don't think so at all. Yeah. And I, he he wanted he invited me and his wife to come up to he lives in Washington D.C. to meet him, but we haven't been able to go yet. But anyway, it was just a very generous letter, and it, and he went into great detail. He thought there was one thing that I'd gotten wrong because I'd I'd listened to what Elizabeth Taylor had to say about James Dean's death. And he said, my father was not cold the way she portrays it. He said, my father, in fact, saw James Dean as someone like myself. I was about the same age as Dean at that time the son was. Mm. So that's the only little quibble he had uh, with my portrait of his father. I was very, very pleased about that. One real strength of the book is that even though it has all of the, you know, the kind of fighting, infighting and all all the details about the the different um, conflicts on set, it never feels salacious or kind of sleazy the way a lot of these star biographies tend to be, particularly Taylor and James Dean have had so many books written about them where they're just, I don't know, very exploitative. And actually, I wanted to ask you, because you must have done a lot of reading and research how did you kind of draw the line between accurate depictions of their lives versus those sort of 
flourishes that sometimes authors will put in there? I'll tell you what happened was I just wound up liking each. I liked Rock Hudson. I didn't know that much about him. I really wound up liking him. I liked James Dean a lot. He was a complete mess, but fascinating. <laughs> and I liked Elizabeth Taylor. And those three interacted all the way through that. You know, they had their Hudson didn't like Dean and vice versa. And they both really liked Elizabeth Taylor. And she was kind of a confidant for both of them. I just wound up liking all those people so much that uh, I just wanted to tell their story as honestly as I could. And not, and I agree with you, not try to sensationalize. Everything that, that I say about them is in the record. There's a tremendous amount of writing and interviews by people who were in that film. A lot of people have been interviewed many times. People like Carol Baker plays the daughter. She wrote a wonderful a memoir. A bunch of those people wrote memoirs about that period. And I, so that was a really rich source mm. as well. The um, relationship between the three main actors uh, kind of off camera sounds like it really kind of echoes what happens on camera as well with Elizabeth Taylor. She's kind of the confidant. She's the one who's, you know, talking them down from their ledges while James Dean and Rock Hudson are off feuding. Exactly. Yeah. No, it was. It was very close. Hmm. And uh, the other thing, I don't know how interesting it is to somebody, you know, in Australia, but all the the stuff that went on and the whole, all the decisions that Stevens made to film out there in this remote day, it's like it would be like filming at Alice Springs, basically. <laughs> That's what it would be like in this small, isolated town out in the middle of a desert, and that's where they were. And he put them out there, and uh, he, it was sheer willpower on his part because he felt he had to have that Texas landscape to make it authentic. He didn't want to film it in. California where it wouldn't look right, etc. And so it was just through sheer willpower and determination. He was a very stubborn man and he was going to do it his way. So then there's the long ongoing fight with uh, Jack Warner, who of course wanted it to be no longer than two and a half hours. And it comes in at three hours and 18 minutes. So he won. He won just about every battle. Texas stuff was very, was I thought extremely interesting as well. I don't know how it plays outside of Texas, but anyway. No, definitely it is. Yeah. It's a uh, you know. It, it, I think the film really gets across this idea that Texas is a whole other world, and it does it so easily, so quickly. I mean, you've got that kind of transition from these uh, rolling green hills of Maryland right. to this really kind right. of desolate, windy, dusty kind of place and you're you're kind of in elizabeth taylor's head at this point going who the hell would want to live out here exactly and then she confronts this kind of exotic mexican-american culture that's being put down constantly by her husband who's a you know kind of a racist the thing i love to point out to uh, millennial audiences because they all love james dean is that james dean is the biggest racist in the film and he never changes <laughs> mm, yeah. I almost felt a little bit like Vic Benedict's racism was generationally inherited. It was just something that he'd never really given much thought to, whereas I feel like Jet's racism is learned mostly because Vic keeps kind of lumping him in with the Mexican ranch hands. That's right. His his is kind of is kind of a class racism. He doesn't want to I mean he's working class. Mm. You're exactly right. And the word I use, although people don't like that word, uh, I think Rock Hudson is more paternalistic than he is an out-and-out bad racist. But at any rate, from George Stevens' point of view, Rock Hudson has to have it beaten into him uh, in that fight scene. In that scene, in the diner scene, 
actually publicly recognizes that his grandson is half Mexican. And he has this arc. That's a term I don't like to use these days, screenwriters. But he has this arc from going from whatever you want to call it, racism or whatever, to uh, a discovery that he's got to change his view about this because this, this child, he loves his child and will love this child. And his son is married a Mexican woman. So it's been brought right into his into his household, into his life. At the end of the film, he believes that the fight, which he lost, he feels terrible about it because he's a macho guy. And Elizabeth Taylor tells him, said, this is the proudest I've ever been. I mean, he really, he really can't understand it. But the audience understands it. That's a really lovely scene as well. Uh, the idea that in the end we get the, the true definition of what a giant is. Is that the scene that they were filming when the news came down about James Dean? I think they had finished that, the, the fight scene. It took them six days to do that. I think that was over. The thing that they did the Saturday after he was killed on Friday, and on Saturday they continued filming, and Elizabeth Taylor was very upset about that. And the scene that they were filming was when Elizabeth Taylor and Rock are sitting on that divan talking about the fight. So mm. it was right in there so when that happened. You spend a lot of time or dedicate a lot of time talking about James Dean in the book. And I almost felt like, as I was reading it, that you were trying to kind of, through the act of writing, understand this completely inscrutable person. Um, <laughs> I, I like at one point you quote Marlon Brando, who thought James Dean was nuts. And I thought, well, if Marlon Brando thinks James Dean is nuts, he must have really been <laughs> on another level. Right. Do you feel like you reached a point where you kind of do understand or did understand him? Yeah, maybe. But Dean was, uh, there's always mysteries surrounding him and his motivations for everything. I didn't really go into this, but there are people who speculate that Dean was very, very worried as his star was ascending that the news was going to get out that he was by. And Hudson had that, had that problem, which he took care of with this kind of fake marriage. But James, James Dean, the th I think that James Dean regardless of whether he had become a big movie star, which he was doing, he was having, you know, he was going to make a bunch of money to have everything he wanted. But he never could get over that anguish from his mother's early death and his father's coldness. I'm telling you, his father was a completely bad guy. He was absolutely cold. Nobody who met the father liked him. And James Dean was just trapped in this psychic box that he couldn't get out of. Mm. The other thing is about Dean is there were a lot of people who thought that success was destroying him. It was making him just, he was he was going to Hollywood. He'd been appealing when he was this kid on the make, but that he had started treating people badly, like waiters, people, you know, where he had been at one point, he started treating people who were just ordinary people in a kind of dismissive way. And I think what would happen to Dean if he had stayed alive, I mean, if he hadn't killed himself in that car wreck, is that what, what happens to everybody, they start making bad movies because there aren't that many good movies to be made. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know how he, would have, how he would have handled that kind of stuff. He was going to make a film called A Left-Handed Gun about Billy the Kid. That was a Western. It was an artsy-type Western, and I think it would have been a failure with him in it, Paul Newman made it, and it was a failure. I don't think he could have controlled his career. Now, there are others who say, oh, no, he would have gone on to become a great director, 
etc. Who knows? Definitely him dying at the point that he did was the best thing that could have happened to his career. It was just a, a tragedy in every other respect because he, right. uh, he, he, you know, he just left this huge, huge legacy. It, it's, hard, it's hard. Yeah, legacy. It's hard to explain. I will tell you this. He was the most obsessed with photographs of himself of anybody that that I've ever read about. Every time there was a photographer 50 yards of him, he was right in front of that guy. Mm. He wanted his picture made all the time. I, I like the way that and, you kind of, in your book, you said that he was kind of um, like a, a precursor to the, the selfie movement. <laughs> right, right. Well, there's, yeah, there's one scene. He got a new camera. He, he made some money off that first film. And he would just take pictures of himself with the camera <laughs> that's what selfies <laughs> yeah he's a pioneer selfie <laughs> that's a funny image <laughs> one really interesting part of the book is when you describe the premiere of giant right and the the part where i don't know what they called the deaners deaners yeah i ran into a woman in houston last week i, I was down there signing books i gave a talk and signing books she was about, I'd say, 70 years old. She came up to me and she, she said, I want you to sign this to a deaner. <laughs> She's a deaner. They're still around. That's crazy. Can you tell us a little bit about that premiere and what happened? Dean had died the year year before, and there were all, not hundreds, but scores of articles in magazines, fan magazines, and so on, that claimed that Jimmy Dean was still alive. And so there was these, what you call deaners, I guess, these the kind of crazy kids who were in New York to see the uh, premiere of the film, and they went nuts when James Dean wasn't there. They thought he was going to show up. They thought he was, Hollywood was holding him back, was going to bring him out there. And so they uh, knocked Rock Hudson down, and they uh, knocked a couple of the, of the actresses down, and there was a real scrum there out in front of the theater. What happened then when the film wound up premiering at the famous theater in uh, L.A.? Nobody showed up. They had gotten the message that he was really dead. It's crazy that they would have thought that it would have been a, a publicity stunt that had, you know, lasted 12 right. months. I know, but and and this thing lasted. That publicity stuff lasted just about a year. And George Stevens got all kinds of letters from James Dean fans urging him not to cut a single foot from any of the James Dean footage. He felt this great burden that he had to get the best of Dean onto the screen as much as he could because there was this tremendous pressure from all these people. This would be their last chance to see him, et cetera, et cetera. The thing is that everybody that knew James Dean, these were his friends who had known him for years. None of them, by the time that he crashed that car, none of them would get in a car with him because they had all had harrowing experiences. Because he drove like a maniac. They thought he'd be killed either on his motorcycle or driving cars up and down those uh, winding hills in uh, Hollywood. But my own feeling is that Dean's impulsiveness is what brought about his death because that car had not been broken in properly. It hadn't even been driven the number of miles that it needed to be. And that car was strictly a racing car. And what he should have done was to tow it up there to that race up at Salinas, California. And if he had towed it, he would have been in a station wagon, which he owned. And I don't think he would have, you know, I don't think the wreck would have occurred, frankly. But he couldn't be stopped from whatever he wanted to do. He was just bound and determined to uh, to do it his way when he wanted to do something. 
So, you know, this might be, seem like an uneducated question, but we're talking 65 years ago now. I mean, what kind of laws was he breaking by speeding? I assume there were far less road rules and far less, you know, restrictions on driving and such. So, you know, was he expressly breaking laws or was he just a wild driver? Well, he got a speeding ticket before the wreck. I think the speeding ticket was maybe just 65 and a 40 or something. But the thing is, if you see a picture of the car, you think, I don't want to take that car out on the highway. It doesn't look right. He just thought, no, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to drive it up there myself. And everything conspired against him because that car was a kind of a pale, silvery color. And when the light was turning toward dusk and the car so small and squatty, it was hard to see. I don't think he was breaking any laws by taking it on the highway to get back to your question. Yeah. But it wasn't very good common sense to, to drive that car up there. Mm. And um, George Stevens had contractually forbidden him from driving while right. they were shooting? Right. And he had finished up shooting. All he had to do was come back and dub in a line or two in a drunken speech, which an actor named Nick Adams did after Dean's death. Anyway, so Dean thought, okay, I'm through. I'm out of this deal with George Stevens. And he took the car, as soon as he got it, he showed it to everybody, and he went down to the uh, studio and took Stevens on a ride, and he took Henry Ginsburg on a ride. Ginsburg was the producer, and I think what Ginsburg said is really incredible. After that ride, he went to the office and he said, you need to get James Dean's paperwork in order because I don't think he's going to be around long. That's scary. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one thing that the book highlights really kind of beautifully is is sort of all of the kind of the feeling of fatedness that happened with James Dean's death. I mean, not just the actual details of where he was killed. Everyone else sort of wasn't. One was terribly injured, I think. But also that he'd, he'd you know, only bought that car three weeks before. He'd only stopped filming a couple of weeks before. He did that commercial yep. on um, <laughs> that public... Oh, yeah, that's another irony. He does the commercial. We probably have a great many young people watching our show tonight, and for their benefit, I'd like your opinion about fast driving on the highway. Do you think it's a good idea? Good point. I, I used to fly around quite a bit, you know. I took a lot of unnecessary chances on the highways. And I started racing, and uh, now I drive on the highways, I'm uh, extra cautious. Because you know, no one knows what they're doing half the time. You don't know what this guy's going to do with that one. On a track, there are a lot of men who spend a lot of time developing rules and uh, ways of safety. And... Uh, I find myself being very cautious on the highway. I don't have the urge to to speed on the highway. People say racing is dangerous, but I'll take my chances on the track any day than on a highway. Well, Gig, I think I'd better take off. Oh, wait a minute, Jimmy. Um, one more question. Do you have any special advice for the young people who drive? Take it easy driving. The life you might save might be mine. You know? <laughs> There were all kinds of, uh, well, a number of people who felt something when they saw him in that period. They had this premonition. The most famous is Alec Guinness. I don't know if you remember that from the book, but mm. Dean was having dinner at uh, his favorite restaurant, the Villa Capri, and Al Alec Guinness came in, and Dean had never met him. He loved to meet, you know, celebrities. So he met him and went out. He said, I want you to come out and look at my car my new car. So Alec Guinness went out there. This was the Friday before the Friday that Dean was killed. And Alec Guinness 
had this moment in which he said, if you drive that car next week at 7 o'clock in the evening, you're going to die in it. He forecast that exact event. It's crazy. And I mean, also, it is crazy. Eartha Kid as well had a feeling of the last time that she saw him that he wasn't himself. That's and, right. And there were, he tried to get people along. He tried to get, I think, his dad along for the drive um, or a friend. Right, exactly. You know, just before that, he had bought a $100,000 life insurance policy, which is a lot of money. It's about a million dollars. And he had not filled in who was going to receive the money. And most of it was going to go to an uncle and aunt who had raised him when the father abandoned him back in Indiana. He never filled in the blanks for who should get the money. And the father wound up getting all the money. Alfred Kaysen, the director that made Dean a star in East of Eden, when he met the father, Dean wanted him to meet his father. And when he met him, he said, I knew I had the perfect guy to play this role because it was clear that the father was so cold that this was the explanation for all of James Dean's problems, that there was absolutely no connection, no love between the father and Dean, who had loved his mother had lost her when he was nine years old. And the fact that that money went to his dad is sort of just like this kind of heartbreaking final note. <laughs> no, it's, I mean, you couldn't write it better, and the details are amazing. One thing I have to ask you, Don, you mentioned in the book that you, well, you credit your wife in the acknowledgements with giving you a better understanding of what made Elizabeth Taylor a great screen actress. Right. I was wondering what she sort of gave to you that kind of made you re-examine her contribution to the film? My wife uh, is a writer herself and an amazing, uh, amazingly astute observer of human experience. And she, uh, she thought that Elizabeth Taylor was just a completely warm, loving, uh, smart, intuitive person who connected with men. She didn't care if they were gay or not. She, she had no bias or anxiety about any of that. And late in life, she was a heroine when Rock Hudson became ill and she uh, stood by him when a lot of people abandoned him. My own view is that Elizabeth Taylor was an incredibly smart person, and I think she became pretty well educated simply through the scripts and the roles that she played. And I keep reading about her, and a lot of directors and actors and films of her would say that she would come, and they were watching these scenes, and it wouldn't seem like anything was happening of interest, that she wasn't really acting. But then when they see the film... She's fabulous. <laughs> she just acted for the camera somehow. Dean acted for everything. <laughs> and they were quite annoyed, weren't they? Um, uh, and especially uh, Rock Hudson throughout the whole picture, but Elizabeth Taylor initially, that he was kind of stealing all of the scenes. I think yeah, George I, Stevens said even in editing that he realized that every time there was a James Dean was in the shot, you weren't looking at anything but James Dean. That's right. I, and I, I do think that's true. He, yeah. he dominates. And I think that, that, you know, a lot of people really like Rebel Falcon. Yeah. A lot of, all the Deaners love that one. But I think Giant's his best film, frankly. I think it's dated quite badly. I do too. Giant hasn't. If anything, Giant is still, sadly, is still extremely topical. I agree. I've taken up so much of your time, Don, and you've been so generous. I just wanted to ask if um, there's anything else that you're working on. I know you said that it's sort of um, <laughs> hard to even think of a, a follow-up act to, to the book. Yeah, I'm kind of beginning the process of thinking about another film, but the problem is none of them can match Giant in terms of the narrative interest. You know, I just don't want to write a boring book. So I will tell you that I don't know yet. <laughs> okay. And I'm trying to survive. 
survived the worst allergy season in my life here in Austin. My voice even now probably over there sounds kind of scratchy. I'm going to come up with something. I need to make a decision pretty soon. I wanted to tell you, by the way, I think you've got a great gunfighter name, Luke Kane. (laughs) Have you ever thought about that? (laughs) No, but I'll definitely take it. Okay. Um, Look, Don, I I don't think you could write a boring book if you tried. It's a fantastic book. I hope all of our listeners jump out and grab it because it is just a beautiful work of scholarship and really entertaining. I really appreciate that, and I really love Oz. As a matter of fact, my wife teaches a course in Australian literature and film. We haven't been to Australia in a number of years. We really miss that country. We really loved it. Well, um, hopefully you you get back here at some point. That would be great. Okay. (laughs) Nice to talk to you. Look, thanks again, Don. I really appreciate it. When are you going to get married, Jen? Don't you need somebody to help you with this kind of responsibility? Well, not. When I get some time to look around, I'll go back east and... Maryland, places like... Say, you got any good-looking sisters back there? Might be interested in some poor people. <laughs> Money isn't old, you know, Jen. <laughs> not when you got it. <laughs> Jen... The other people around here, why don't they help themselves like you've done? Well, now, when you say other people, what do you mean? Well, I, I've just come back from the Endocito. Oh, that bunch of wetbacks. Well, I hope you don't go get me mixed up with none of them. I'm just as much a Texas as Dick Benedict is. You know, wet back. Oh, I know that. You're very like Jordan in that respect. Attitude, everything. But your situation is so different. You're a working man. Well, that's something I'm going to try to fix. Someday I will. Rebecca Solnit wrote in Harper's 2016, I liked this quote. She's talking about the film. It's a freak a wildly successful mid-1950s Technicolor film about race, class and gender from a radical perspective, with a charismatic, unsubjugated woman at the centre. The shift is not just from cows to crude, but from patriarchy to some kind of negotiated reshuffling of everything, the beginning of our contested contemporary era. So, you know, we get, obviously, the transition from cattle ranching to oil well drilling, But we also get the transition from traditionalist, conservative, Anglo-Saxon ideas about life to this new wave of liberalism. And that transition is in the film as well. And also, I mean, the way that it's different from, let's just look at the relationship between the two main characters in Giant and the relationship between the two main characters in Gone with the Wind. I mean, at the end of the movie, she's a bradish little girl who he leaves as kind of a punishment for her actions, which are reprehensible. And in Giant, that equals. Yeah, she could have earned her place in Texas by allowing herself to be subjugated and oppressed and by playing the doting, quiet, not-making-any-trouble wife that he wanted. But instead, she earns it on her terms. Now, do you find that there is a problem with the fact that most of her feminism happens inside the prism of a marriage? Because really the only thing that Leslie fights for outside of her marriage is the cause of the Mexicans who are living on the ranch. No, I don't think it's a problem. I'd have to talk to a feminist to know, but most of what Leslie campaigns for is just equal footing inside a marriage. What she wants is a successful, happy marriage. She doesn't want much beyond that. But 
this is one of those things where you can say that somebody who does something great doesn't go far enough because they don't do everything. I mean, that's a that's a wrong argument to have. Nobody has time to change the world. If they can do something like she's done, they're changing not only themselves, they're changing other people, they're changing a community, and they're changing the way that things are done. You know, in a film like Giant, it seems like a pretty big change, but it's a small change in the big scheme of things that then has a trickle effect for generations going forward. And, if you know, you t- kind of look at it and say, well, if everybody makes these changes, then two generations from now we're going to be in a much better place we're going to be in a more equal place we're going to be in a less i guess a less prejudiced place that sounds to me like that argument that oh, this person is doing this but they're not doing that and therefore they're not doing it correctly and i don't think that's a ne- that's a necessarily a right argument yeah like if this woman wants a marriage and a family and that is her aspiration turn around and say well you don't want the right things you should want this and that her kind of kowtowing to that would be anti-feminist yeah i hate that argument to say that somebody is an individual i mean she doesn't call herself a feminist in the movie the movie is not overtly about feminism it just features that as part of her character to say that somebody owes something to the world to be a better feminist to be a better activist that's like saying vegans should have to plant trees as well I guess that leaves only me. Oh, love's fine. Everybody in Novus County knows you'd rather herd cattle than make love. Now, uh, one thing God say for cattle. Boy, you put your brand on one of them, you're going to know where it's at. <laughs> Another strong woman in the film is Luz. Luz is important because she was born and bred in Texas. She didn't migrate there like Leslie. And in her own way, Luz is a little bit of a feminist. You know, she's empowered. She shares responsibility for running the ranch kind of equally with Bic. She takes over when he goes on trips away. She's never been married, and that's been accepted by her friends and family. And they even make a comment on that. Yeah, which is hilarious. Yeah. When she's like, I guess that leaves only me. And she's kind of staring kind of like starry-eyed out into the... That is after the person who I like to refer to as the dowdy frumpet. <laughs> has said, well, there's more than one person getting married today. <laughs> she is probably my favourite, like, bit part character in this movie. She's a, her name's Vesta or something. Yeah. Mach Nye and I were married yesterday in Hermosa. <laughs> she was Rock Hudson's, you know, would-be wife in this film. Yeah. The one he was supposed to get married to. And Luz, uh, you know, she dies because she kind of associates this horse war wins with Leslie and she's brutal to this horse and the horse... She dies her. in a horrible way that is very becoming of that kind of character. I, it, I, I did not feel sympathy. No, neither. Anyone who's cruel to animals is hard to kind of come back from that. But she kind of dies at a point that's very convenient for the story. Mm. Because, you know... Oh, it's great. The marriage has this big problem in it, which is this spinster sister who resents Leslie completely and keeps trying to kind of thwart her. (laughs) And she just dies and that's it. Oh, good, we can move on to the next series of problems that we've got. I've read a few articles that said that it's not very convincing that she dies then. It's just too convenient. But the after effects of her death are felt because she ultimately leaves Jet the land that gives him this renewed... Well, not only does she leave him the land, but this gives the opportunity for Elizabeth Taylor to send the Doctor to the Mexican village. It's a, it is a very convenient yeah. scene. <laughs> <It is. laughs> Mercedes McCambridge is a great actress. She was 
in Johnny Guitar. She played Joan Crawford's rival in that movie. And she also voiced the devil in The Exorcist. So Johnny Guitar was directed by Nicholas Ray, who directed James Dean's Rebel Without a Cause as well. Yeah. This is what Larry McMurdy, he wrote an article for the New York Times in 96 when Giant was having one of its re-releases. It was called Men Swaggered, Women Ward, Oil Flowed. And he wrote, Neither in the book nor in the film is Luz Benedict's death particularly convincing. The fact is the narrative just does not have time to allow Luz to wage a longer battle. Not a few Texas ranchers boast spinster dominatrix sisters, some of whom have succeeded in driving off not one but a succession of wives. In the course of throwing Luz, the stallion breaks its leg and has to be killed. For the moment, in this war of the cultures, the score is even. One dead Texas woman, one dead Maryland horse. Yeah. And that's, that's the impression that you get. That's the price that is to be paid, mm. that her horse is killed. You're in the wrong place, amigo. Come on, let's get out of here. Vamos, andale. Your money's no good here. Come on, let's go. You too. Hold on a minute. Yes? What do you want? Now, look here, Sarge. I'd sure appreciate it if you were a little more polite to these people. Oh, you would, would you? I'm Vic Benedict. Your neighbor, you might say. Does that give you special privileges? The name Benedict's meant something to people around here for a considerable time. That there papoose down there, his name Benedict too? Yeah, come to think of it. It is. In Don Graham's book, he cited a story where author John Ricci was in Texas in the 1950s and saw a sign in a diner that read, We do not serve Mexicans, niggers or dogs. When was this? In the 50s in Texas. In the 50s in Texas, so not even when this film is set. No. Really? When does this film stop being set? I think it's 1925. It, it starts. starts. Oh, okay. 35, 40, it would stop in 1950. Yeah, okay. Almost gets to present day. Yeah. And they make such a big deal of that sign in the movie. Obviously, it's a very toned down sign from what you've just said, but they make such a big deal of that right to refuse service to anyone. Well, I think when the waiter throws that sign down onto Bick, it's almost... It feels very cruel. It almost feels like he's urinating on him. Yeah. One of the impressions you get from the start of the movie is that Bick, who is this person who's always made the decisions and women defer to him, but not only women, but his help defers to him, is that he's doing a favour to Mexicans by employing them. And that's probably what they thought at the time, that they're they're there for help. And, you know, if I give you a job helping around the ranch, I'm doing you a favour. And they probably did have a better quality of life than Mexicans who were unemployed you got to think. Only because Mexicans had been annexed and left to the side and slaughtered. That's right, yes. It was done to them. And obviously by the end of the movie, Leslie and Bick are kind of on equal footing in regarding the decisions within the company and the family. Uh, and that's really demonstrated by this scene in which they are in bed and they're talking about sacrifice and they're each kind of lobbying for one child. And they both get this realisation that they have been putting their own kind of ideas onto their children. I think that's a really great scene in helping those two characters to develop. And even though Bick has this hesitance to accept that his son is not going to be taking over the ranch, it's the starting point for accepting that. And I think that there's a few other things in the movie that make Mexican characters a little more human from how they're originally seen. One of them is uh, Angel, who becomes a war hero. Obviously the son, Geordie, who marries a Mexican girl. And this kind of prompts a little bit more acceptance until he is now 
openly defending his son who is married to a Mexican girl in front of pretty much all of Texas at Jet's new airport hotel. But as Jordan says, that's more about saving face. He's more ashamed that he saw his son get beat. It is, but all of these things are just baby steps until the diner scene when he says... I I can't remember the term, but essentially he asks if that child is a Benedict. And you can see this realisation come over his face that, yes, that child is a Benedict. He carries my name. You know, he may be half Mexican, but he carries my name. He is a Benedict. The Benedicts are now a family that has Mexican blood in them. And he is fully accepting at that point. And that, I think, is just the perfect kind of transition from the start of the movie. A character transitioning from prejudiced to unprejudiced is one of the hardest things to make convincing on screen. Mm. It's almost never done well. And they do it so convincingly. In this. I mean, you compare this to, I'm sorry to say, Damien, but Green Book, which is just totally unconvincing that those characters change or anything like that. Luke, you're perfectly fine for anybody who doesn't know. I didn't mind Green Book. I thought it was a pretty decently made film. Four and a half stars. That's more than didn't mind. Okay, a little bit of history. I gave it four and a half and Luke gave it half. Okay, and he talked me down to three and a half and I talked him up to one and a half. Even though it is still a half. So... That movie's worth nothing. It's total piss. Anyway, and then I got really annoyed when Green Book beat, I think it was First Reformed, Roma and The Favourite for Best Screenplay because writing is not at strong point. And now I am kind of in the anti-Green Book wagon. Well, Jurassic World was a better movie than Green Book. Well, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom was a lot more fun than Green Book. That's what I meant. Yeah, I don't know where that movie came from, Luke. I'm just saying that a movie that actually has nothing to say, like (laughs) Fallen Kingdom, is better than whatever Pierce Green Book was trying to say. Okay, well, anyway. The fact that Bick's transition in this film is so convincing is probably the film's crowning achievement. Leslie is directly responsible for all of these changes in Bick. She's homesick. She cares for the Mexican baby when he's sick. She is uh, one of many who persuade Bick to explore oil mining. She forces her way into these males-only conversations. She persuades her husband to allow their son to study medicine. All of these things. As a major difference to this, Leslie is not changed by Bick, but she is changed by Texas. It's interesting. Yeah, it, it really is. She's changed by Texas as a location. And it brings me back to that quote by Uncle Borley where he tells her early in the film, quote, when you've seen it all and have lived with it as I have, in 25 years from now, you'll feel just you'll feel about Texas just the way I do. And then there is that scene at the end of the movie where she states that it's home. But I think that, you know, she's he is changed by her, but she is changed by her change of location. Yeah. The way that the film deals with the nature of life in terms of where you are and at what age you are is so beautiful. I love the scene where... Luz is trying, in the beginning, Luz is trying to get them into separate bedrooms and they both yeah. laugh at her and they say, no, we're married, we're going to sleep in the same bed. And we're going to take the next bedroom and turn it into a sitting room. Then there's a scene where they're older and they're in separate beds. Yeah. And Luz says, we're old, suddenly, we're the next generation. And, you know, the fact that she uses the term suddenly, I mean, we're only in our, say, early to mid-30s, but, I mean, we can already feel that when we get to 55, it's going to feel sudden. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah. And so... The weeks go quicker the more you age. Yeah, they do. And life goes quickly. It just zaps by. James Dean? We need to talk about James Dean. Yes. 
because I think any discussion about Giant that didn't include James Dean would be ludicrous. Well, I think you have to talk about James Dean if you do a film that stars James Dean because there's only three of them. Although there were many, many TV appearances before he sort of got into film. We're not a TV podcast, Luke. No, I know, but I'm just saying. Useless information. I think a lot of people would say that James Dean is the most amazing thing in Giant, and it's hard to disagree with that, although everything about Giant is pretty high grade. From Elizabeth Taylor to George Stevens to the set design, everything. Even the score is quite lovely. But um, his first appearance in the film is, is very inconspicuous. Deliberately so. You know, Stevens puts him in the periphery of the frame. And he does that quite often. Yeah, but the very first time we see him, he's in shadow. And it kind of tells us immediately what we need to know about Jet, which is that he is he doesn't rate on the social hierarchy. You know, he's no higher in Bick's mind than the Mexican ranchers. Yeah. This comparison of Jet to the Mexican ranchers really bothers Jet. It's the jet fuel that launches his desire for wealth and also the jet fuel that turns him into the worst racist in the movie because he hates the association. Later when we see Jet at the party for Leslie, he's sort of sitting on that convertible with his Stetson over his face and he's not with the Mexicans and he's not with the kind of well-mannered folk. He is an outsider. And he thinks that if he has success and if he has money that he'll have people. But he never gets them. And that's sort of the biggest joke is that he goes for all the wrong things. I love the scene where Jet is introduced to Leslie and he puts out his hand and then Bick kind of says something gruff and he just takes the hand back before Leslie has a chance to even shake it and walks away. You know, he's and there's another scene that I love of Jet where she walks into his house to have tea and she sees that he's got a cutout of her in the newspaper on her wedding day and he's super embarrassed that she's seen it. Oh, it's so funny. And he's just like, oh, my God, and he stutters some excuse about why he's got there. And she goes, oh, you know, that's very nice. The enduring story is that he loves, loves Leslie. Yeah, and their scenes, he approaches them. He talks to her like their love scenes. Yeah. Whereas she's very guarded and just talks to him like she would anyone else on the road. That's ranch. right. It's like she doesn't even realise almost. No. I mean, I think she does realise. She's too intelligent not to. And there's one scene where you can tell she realises, and that's where he says, oh, you're very beautiful. And she says, that's a very nice compliment. I'll tell Bic. I'll tell my husband that. I don't think that's a good idea. You won't be doing that. (laughs) So, I mean, I think that she has enough keenness to know that he's maybe thinking that way. But she is a lady of high moral stand. Or she never leads him on. Mm. She never gives him any impression that she is anything except devoted to being. I mean, who would you sleep with? Rock Hudson in Giant or James Dean in Giant? Both. No, you only get to choose one. James Dean. Really? Yeah. I think I'd go Rock Hudson. Obviously pre-disease Rock Hudson. Luke. Well. It's hard to imagine James Dean being as iconic as a figure, not just in this movie, but as a figure without Rebel Without a Cause, which kind of came to this post-depression, post-World War II generation, spoke of this um, generation of young Americans who they felt disenfranchised and they felt oppressed uh, by parents who rarely spoke about their feelings. That film's about a lack of belonging, essentially, and a lack of acceptance and the ways in which young people act out in these circumstances. And Giant is kind of the film in which Dean married that vision of himself 
which is young and eager, full of promise and an anti-authoritarian edge to this vision of adult America. Uh, you know, the entrepreneur and the businessman. And the marriage just doesn't work, which is seen by his descent into alcoholism and his continued yearning for Leslie. And he's spent decades looking only for essentially one thing, which is vengeance against the Benedict family. And he plays this out by, you know, excluding the son's new wife from the basic amenities of a, a beauty parlour. Plays it out against the daughter by stringing her along. Uh, romantically and against Bick by embarrassing him and his family in front of the kind of well-to-do Texas elite and it just echoes this kind of sadness that you kind of think is present in James Dean's life like I said to you (laughs) after I'd watched the movie watching that final scene of him is kind of like just a documentary crew rocked up for the day and started filming James Dean yeah you know that's that's the impression that you get obviously you said that without Rebel Without a Cause he wouldn't have risen up into iconography but also without his premature death. That's right, yes. Which was an act of... I mean, he wasn't um, actually responsible for that car accident, although he was. He was driving a race car which wasn't designed to drive those long distances through that sort of... uh, those sort of roads. It was a guy that was turning... turned without seeing him. And, you know, the car was very low and, you know, wasn't very visible. But it really wasn't Dean's fault, although he was probably doing an outrageous speed because he was known for that a lot of people would not get into cars with him he'd only bought that car two or three weeks before there was one of the one or two other guys in the car with him that were injured but didn't die thankfully his premature death added to this aura of who james dean is yeah that may have been true may not have been true on screen we don't have enough data to draw from no but i think his presence on screen if you had to use a word for it, it's haunting. Haunting is a good word, yeah. Because he's kind of inscrutable. Like, you don't know why he is so engaging, but he is. Mm. I think the best scenes in the movie are the scenes with Leslie and Jet. And there are very few. But when they're on screen, it's like the tension between those two energies. Not just the characters, but actually the actors. Because you've got Liz Taylor coming from this very much old-school groom style of acting and filmmaking with this new New York method-y performer. And, you know, the way that Jet stole a lot of these scenes, or James Dean, rather, was by making sure he always had some business going on. Yeah. Yeah. You know, she's a very clear and very refined speaker, whereas Dean almost acts like he's only half thinking about the scene. While he's in the well, scene. Well, I, I, I agree. <laughs> I mean, the scene where he's being given some land, he's just playing with his rope yeah. the entire time. And it is so kind of off-putting. But also hypnotic. Yeah. I mean, you're certainly watching James Dean play with that rope instead of watching Rock Hudson act very, very annoyed that he has to try and buy him out. Like in that scene, which might be two minutes long, he's playing with this rope, he's speaking in these kind of slurred words, he's playing with his hat, he's looking around, he's smiling, he's looking serious. He's doing so much in <laughs> yeah. that one scene. He is, and it's very, very clever, and you can see probably why Rock Hudson was getting annoyed with him. It must have almost felt like he was trying to play the scene alone in a way, because it is as if James Dean only has half an eye on the scene, and he's actually thinking about something But it really works perfectly for his character in this, who is this nervous kid who's got nothing until he's got everything. Yeah. A great moment in the film is when we see Jet measuring his land 
yeah. with deliberate strides. It's so beautiful. He looks like a little boy, but he also looks like someone in colonial times when the land was first divvied up by white settlers and measured with these strides across plains and then, you know, hitched with kind of talons to show where everything would go. And then he kind of jumps up onto that windmill and just for the first time owns something. Even the way he jumps onto the windmill is really engaging to watch. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, I think Jet is a bit of a weasel. He punches two men at different times while they're being restrained by other men. Yeah. You know, so obviously we've got this fabulous scene where Jet comes up to them, he's drenched in oil, he knows he's going to be wealthy, and he just goes there and says, I'm going to show it to you stinking fucking Benedicts. He doesn't say fucking, but it's implied. He makes a comment to Leslie. It's like almost now that I'm a landowner, I have the confidence to say you look good enough to eat, which is something that he never would have said before if he, if he didn't own that land and if he hadn't struck oil. Well, and then Uncle Borley says you should have shot that kid a long time ago. Now he's too rich to kill. <laughs> yeah, that's so good. The reason that Jet's racism is more abhorrent than Bix is because Jet's learned to be a racist through bad experiences. It's almost like the cruelty and the snobbery of Bic is what led to Jet thinking, I am never, ever again going to be associated with a wet back. I also get the impression, though, that he did that specifically to spite Bick in in the final scene. You're right. Everything that Jet does is revenge on Bick. And that's why his life goes down the toilet, because revenge is no driver. You know, like, you've got to have more drivers than that. You've got to have more positive drivers. And in this sense, there is no evolution for Jet. I mean, he gets more money. And that's different. He gets more confidence, but he doesn't evolve in any important way. No, that's why I say this kind of vision of what James Dean was in Rebel Without a Cause, which is very similar to what he's like at the start of Giant, and then that is married with something that it just not it is not cohesive with. And it's almost like he wants Luz as sort of like a sad, second-rate version of Leslie. And that would be terrible for Luz. Which is why she thanks her uncle for showing her that. There is something heartbreaking about that final drunk scene where we really do, for the first time here, Jet admit that his whole life he's been in love with Leslie. Certainly had indications that that's true with the newspaper thing on the wall with the little compliments he'll try to give her. He's um, a little too interested in her throughout most of the film. But it still does come as somewhat of a surprise to know that even he is self-aware, that he is aware of the fact that he actually does love her and that he can say it openly in kind of a drunk moment, a drunk, honest moment. And there is something terribly sad about the fact that he's gone through his whole life without ever asking her. I mean, she would say no, but at least he would have asked her. At least he wouldn't have got to 55 or 60 and is still hanging on to this ridiculous fantasy that she might come around to him. Yeah. All right, forget I ask you. Now, you just go back over there and sit down, and we ain't going to have no trouble. But this punch here is going to eat somewhere else. All right, come on, let's go. Thank you. Come on, you two. Sue me. You're out of line, mister. I like that the film starts out with these wide-open plains, opulent houses, but ends in what is essentially like this seedy little place. You know that the movie kind of shrinks down to its essentials in that scene, does away with all of the glamour. And um, the setting almost reflects Bick's trajectory 
from top of the heap to someone whose pride has been beaten and you know not only by the oil boom but by this new wave of liberalism and this reshifting of values you know obviously Bick defends his grandson as we've spoken about he gets knocked down and there's the scene at the end of the movie is him sort of resting his wounded head and wounded pride on Leslie's lap and saying that his whole life has been nothing but failure and Leslie says that he's a success which brings us back to the title you know what makes you a giant what defines you as a giant you know success in the final analysis is measured not by who has the most acreage who has the most cattle or who has the most oil wells it's who is most loved and most worthy of love and it's who is able to allow humanity to prevail and that is essentially what i see happening in the diner scene I don't have too much to say about that, but apart, apart from that, I, I see humanity has come to Bick, especially when he looks back and realizes that the child is part of his family, and that that is why he. Uh, Leslie says, "You know, I finally, after a hundred years, the Benedict family is a real huge success." If you look at these two parents, there's a scene where they're talking about sacrifice. Hmm. Really, the parent that has to make the most sacrifice is Bick. Yep. Because he has to let go of ideologies that have been ingrained re- in him since birth. Release hmm. a reception. Okay, let's talk about how Giant did. So, Giant premiered in New York City on October 10th, 1956, and was released wide the following month. I guess it has to premiere in a place like New York City, doesn't it? They wanted it to premiere in Texas. Well, it should have. Yeah, they weren't able to make it happen. Uh, it eventually knocked an even longer film off the top of the box office when it came out, if you can believe that. Uh, that film was King Vidor's adaptation of Leo Tolstoy's War and Peace, otherwise known as War, What Is It Good For? Starring Audrey Hepburn and Henry Fonda, which had been at number one for four weeks. Giant stayed atop the box office for five weeks before its position was usurped by, once again, an even longer film, this time Cecil B. DeMille's biblical epic, The Ten Commandments. So this was certainly a ripe time for Giant to debut in cinemas because the American public was really just eating up these epics. Giant earned about $12 million in rentals that year, and uh, I think the budget was about 5.4, did you say? Uh, but subsequent re-releases, including the one in 1996, would see it climb all the way up to $39 million in box office takings. As you said, Giant finished third in the yearly box office behind The Ten Commandments, which was at this point the most expensive film ever made at $13 million, and another three-hour-long film around the world in 80 days. Critical reception was mostly excellent, with The Hollywood Reporter calling it a monumental drama as big and inspiring as the locale for which it is named stating that it readily takes its place with the handful of screen epics. Bosley Crowther of the New York Times says of the 201-minute runtime, that's a heap of time to go on about Texas, but Mr. Stevens has made a heap of film. He's only concerned that it does have a way of becoming a trifle rambling and overwrought at times, but for all its complexity is a strong contender for the year's Best Film Award. Indeed, award nominations did come its way. It led all comers with 10 Academy Award nominations, one more than King and I, two more than eventual Best Picture winner Around the World in 80 Days, and three more than its longer, more expensive competitor, The Ten Commandments. The film was nominated for Best Picture, Actor, both Rock Hudson and James Dean, Supporting Actress, Mercedes McCambridge, Adapted Screenplay, Score, Art Direction, Costume Design and Editing. 
Its only win was in directing, where George Stevens took home the award ahead of Michael Anderson, William Wyler, Walter Lang and King Vidor. It was Stevens' second win in this category after 1951's A Place in the Sun, putting him in a very exclusive group of two-time winners. He was nominated throughout his career a further three times, and his films garnered Best Picture nominations six times, but never won. Uh, And most of those were pretty much within a one-decade period. So the film was recognised in the AFI's 1998 100 Years 100 Movies list as the 82nd best American motion picture ever made. Around the World in 80 Days, The King and I, The Ten Commandments and Friendly Persuasion, Giant's competition for the Best Picture Award, did not feature on this list. In 2005, Giant was selected by the Library of Congress for preservation in the National Film Registry as being culturally, historically or aesthetically significant. Alright, quiz. Okay. True or false? For his role in Giant, James Dean was the first actor to receive a posthumous Academy Award nomination. I'm going to say no. Well, it's true or false, Luke. Are you saying false? False. Okay, you're right, it's false. James Dean was actually the first actor to receive a posthumous Academy Award nomination, but that came one year earlier for East of Eden. And he's the only person in Academy Award history to receive two posthumous acting nominations. How sad. Yeah. What did James Dean hunt mercilessly in Marfa, Texas, whilst filming Giant? Whew. Uh, rabbits? Yes. <laughs> he killed 261. Jesus Christ. You ever gone rabbit hunting? No. I have. I'd never go hunting of anything. Okay. Uh, which actor or actress from Giant starred alongside James Dean in his earlier film, Nicholas Ray's Rebel Without a Cause? Which actor from Giant was Sal Mineo. Yes, it is. He played the uh, character who idolised James Dean in um, Rebel Without a Cause and he met a similarly tragic ending in that film. And he was uh, just 16 when he filmed both of those movies. But in 1976, at the age of 37, life imitated art when he was attacked randomly in West Hollywood. He was stabbed and died. Horrible. Mm. I think he's wearing uh, dark makeup. In this film, yeah. And I think a lot of the Mexican actors, even if they were Mexican, had uh, sort of darker skin, were made to look darker to kind of highlight the contrast, which is kind of a weird variation on blackface. All right, uh, question two for you. So we're on. I'm on two. You're on one. But I'm I'm ahead. So. Yes, look, you're ahead. Elizabeth Taylor couldn't go on filming Giant after learning of James Dean's death, and the production had to be delayed a week. Two years later, Taylor was shooting another movie when she learned that her husband Mike Todd had been killed in a plane crash. What was that movie? Cat on a Hot Tin Roof. Yes. So now we're even two two. Okay. Name the two Best Picture-nominated films from 2007 that were largely shot in Marfa, Texas, where Giant was shot. Oh, God. I am not going to get this right. So maybe uh, there will be blood? Ding, ding. And, um... The same year? Yeah, I'm not going to get this. The film that won Best Picture? No Country for Old Men? Ding, ding! Oh, my God. (laughs) Miracle. Okay, uh... A Texas oil tycoon who owned 200 cinemas threatened not to show the film if one scene was not removed. Name the scene. Oh, that's a tough one. The the scene obviously wasn't removed. No. Um, I can feel myself winning this quiz. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm going to assume it was a scene about 
the oil industry. Could have been that vital a scene to request that it was removed. I'm just going to say... I don't know, maybe the diner scene. No. So it's the scene where they're um, poolside and Leslie and Vic discuss the tax exemption. Ah, yeah. And wanted that gone. And he threatened not to show the film. Mm. Mm. So you win. Yes. As you should, because you read a very detailed book about this movie. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> um, I've got a couple more questions to you. Yeah. All right. Should we just keep going for fun? Okay. But I am the winner. Which actor from Giant was screen tested for the lead role in Somebody Up There Likes Me, which was to be James D- a James Dean vehicle prior to his untimely death? Paul Newman? Paul Newman eventually got the role. I said which actor from Giant was screen tested for that oh, role. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, mm. Actor or actress? Actor in the, the lead role oh, that was okay. going to be James Dean's. Well, it would have to be either Salmon or Dennis Hopper. No, it was actually Rod Taylor. Oh, right. Rod Taylor, who was, uh, you know, was quite a heartthrob and a star, but never really got to those same heights. No, I mean, I guess the birds would have been the apex of his career. Yeah. Should have moved that question higher up in the quiz. <laughs> I should have, yeah. What trick did George Stevens employ to get Rock Hudson to look awkward in the dinner scene at the beginning of the film? Uh, he directed while naked. No, he had the other actors leave the table, so Hudson filmed it as if he was sitting there by himself. Oh, okay. That's interesting. Okay, another question about Rod Taylor. He uh, obviously co-stars here as British diplomat Sir David Carfrey and would later work with Elizabeth Taylor, who is not his sister, in two more films. What are they? Oh, gosh. I should have moved both of these questions up. Yeah, you should have. One of them was the following year... No, I don't know. Okay, so the following year, Rain Tree County. Oh, I don't know that film very and well. And one of his, uh, one of her films with Richard Burton. Richard Burton, the VIPs. Ah, oh, okay, yeah, that had an all-star cast, I think. Yes. Okay. Damn. Damn. Uh, my last one is: According to Taylor, James Dean confessed something about his past to her one night while they were filming, which made him so awkward the next day that he couldn't even acknowledge her. What did he confess? That he'd had sex with men. That he'd been sexually molested by his minister when he was 11 years old. Oh, gosh. Do you know, there's a story about James Dean. Fuck on George Pell. <laughs> it wasn't George Pell. Okay. There's a devastating episode in James Dean's life that I read in Don Graham's book. James Dean had loved his mum and had no relationship with his father, who was very cold and kind of emotionally cut off. And um, James Dean's mother died suddenly when he was 11 years old. 10 or 11 years old and his father didn't know what to do with him so he shipped him off to um live with his aunt and uncle but anyway on the train that james dean took to get there his mother's body was being carted back to her hometown for burial and every time the train would stop james dean would run out into the carriage that he knew his mother was in because he was worried that she'd fallen out (sighs) isn't that awful yeah yeah so i think that probably goes some way to explain why he was perhaps such a sort of strange and difficult emotionally complicated man i think Mm. he had a very rough go yes rating out of five um i give giant four stars four is wrong you're you know desperately doing a good job to convince me it's four and a half really through this episode but uh i'm gonna stick with four just because i think the first two hours of this film are much better than the last 80 minutes of this film. I think it kind of loses something in its second half. 
And I think also some of the transitions between time periods don't work particularly well for me. And so that's that's why it's not any higher than that. But that said, it's a really enjoyable movie to watch. Well, I gave it 4.5. I knocked off half a star for the same reason that you just said. But I think in terms of it, its uniqueness and what it does get right, how successfully it gets right, what it's trying to say, I think it's a little better than your standard four-star movie. So I'm going to go 4.5. Okay. Well, that's all we have on Giant. Next month, we're going to be looking at one of our favourite thrillers. Instead of giving you a title, I'll just say that my little ceramic penguin in the study always faces due south. That's right, we'll be seeing you in a snowstorm in Colorado. (laughs) It's good, isn't it? That is terrible. Until then, y'all have a mighty nice evening. Okay, see you later. (laughs) 